I'm standing on the side on the third and seven call. It's February 3rd, 2008. The New York Giants are taking on the 18-0 New England Patriots in Super Bowl 42. Tom Brady and the Pats are up 14-10, and with a minute left on the clock, Giants quarterback Eli Manning has the ball. He needs a first down to keep the Giants' hopes alive. Giants head coach at that time, Tom Coughlin, was standing on the sideline as three Patriots were swarming Eli. You know, I see right away, it's it's like a sieve. Three guys have got Eli. Pressure from Thomas off the edge. It does look like he's going down. And I'm, I'm saying, please, don't blow the play dead. Don't blow the play dead. And all of a sudden, Eli makes some kind of a whirling action with his shoulders, and he kind of ducks up. Eli Manning stays on his feet. I remember watching this play. Eli Manning, by some miracle, escapes the defenders. And he runs up into the line of scrimmage. And the next thing you know, he's throwing the ball down the middle of the field. Airs it out down the field. And he throws this ball down to David Tyree, who is going to the post, sees the quarterback scrambling around, comes back to the ball, gathers himself. It is caught by Tyree. He goes up and catches the ball with both hands. Now, Rodney Harrison rips one of his arms away. So all he's got left to provide support for the ball is one hand and his helmet. Pressing it against his helmet as he goes to the ground and not dropping it. So he goes through all of this and he still never let go of the ball. I mean, even at the end, they're still swiping away at him. Nope. He hangs on to the ball and he's got it. Inside the 25 and a timeout taken. And now I, you know, call timeout so we don't waste any time getting up over the ball. And now with 59 seconds left, the Giants needing a touchdown. This is In the Moment from Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. Today, my guest is former New York Giants head coach Tom Coughlin. He led the Giants to two Super Bowl victories in four years. But today, we're talking about one of those Super Bowls. It was arguably one of the most famous games in NFL history because Coughlin coached the underdog Giants to victory over the undefeated Patriots. After that infamous helmet catch, the Giants have 59 seconds to score a touchdown. Today, I talked to Tom Coughlin to get the coach's perspective. Taking time out here, obviously, I don't want to waste time to get our team up there. Let's get them in a huddle, get them organized for the next play. More when we come back. Lionel Messi. Legendary soccer player. I feel like there's nothing this player couldn't do, but he's never won a World Cup. No, 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 it's got away, it's got away. Now he has one last chance. Listen to The Last Cup in the embedded podcast feed to hear the latest collaboration from NPR and Futuro Studios. Tom Coughlin was head coach of the New York Giants from 2004 to 2015. And in that time, he led the Giants to wins in Super Bowl 42 and Super Bowl 46, both against the same opponent, the New England Patriots. Coughlin was probably most notable for his stern disciplinarian approach to coaching. It earned him the nickname Colonel Coughlin. Classic Coughlin story, he would move clocks a few minutes ahead at team facilities so players would arrive early for team meetings. And he'd even find players who did not arrive early. But over the years, Coughlin 
dialed back that tough love mentality. And a lot of that change is tied to his wife, Judy, who sadly passed away this past November. And we'll talk to him more about that later. But first, back to Super Bowl 42. The Giants have 59 seconds to score a touchdown. And I wanted to know how an NFL coach experiences a moment like this. Coach, I, you know, I talk to a lot of players and I think we've gotten a lot of reflections from them about what the experience is like on the field. I don't talk to a lot of coaches. Like we see you on television. You're, you know, you could be barking in the headset. You could be talking in the headset. You could be listening. I know you, you're one of the coaches who keeps both ears covered with the headset. Both ears covered. But like, what's going on? Like, what are you saying? You know, you call timeout after that, that famous helmet catch and then what is the conversation that happens? Who's saying what into the headset and what role are you playing? Well, the only thing I'm saying is, okay, I'm going to take a, I'm taking time out here. Obviously, I don't want to waste time to get our team up there. Let's get them in a huddle, get them organized for the next play. I don't, I don't want to get to have a problem with the, with that either. So, but now the, the offensive coordinator, Kevin Gilbride, he's right back into his first down play calling route. So he's telling you that he's saying, coach, I'm, I'm calling this. Yeah, he's going. He doesn't even have to say that part of it. He's making contact with, with Eli as he, Eli gets down the field because we got timeout, so there's no rush. So oftentimes you're listening, and if you've got to say something, you'll say it, but otherwise you're just letting your quarterback and your coordinator, you trust him. I've been the play caller. I don't like, I didn't like to be interrupted, okay? Now I'll say something when the ball is dead, or I'll say something after a series, but if it's a live ball in a series, most of the time, I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to inject anything unless I see something that needs to be done. What's an example of something that needs to be done? When might you inject? Well, I might say run. You know, I might say run or pass. If there seems to be a, a situation where it looks as though, uh, you know, he, he needs me to clarify, I'll say, okay, run, pass, whatever, or repeat that play, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. That's what you say in those situations. Can I relive... Uh, the play with 39 seconds left. You're at the 13-yard line. Yeah. This is the winning play. What's the play call? Take me through that second by second. In in the huddle, okay, as the play is called, and it's a it's a repeated play. Repeated play being this is something you've 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 run earlier in the game. The play before. Oh, same same plays. The play before. Yeah, same play. Same so play. you decide we're going to run this again. Yes. Eli looks at Plaxico. He says to Plaxico, Plax, if. You're single covered out there. The ball's coming to you. So Plaxico breaks out of the huddle. Eli comes to the line of scrimmage. He sees the secondary. The secondary is rotated to his right. Plaxico's out to his left. The blitz, it's going to be the all-out blitz. Blitz zero, okay? And it's coming from the right. Brandon Jacobs slides over there, picks up the extra rusher, okay? Eli steps back. Plaxico makes a a, a slant fake, okay? When he makes the slant fake, Hobbs, the very, very good defensive back, he has to honor the fact that it may very well be slant. So he kind of settles with his feet almost parallel. In the meantime, Plaxico is recovered from the, from the slant fake, and he's now releasing into the end zone, and he goes right past Hobbs. Eli sees this. He throws the ball up in the air. I'm from where I am. I don't know if the ball is ever coming down. I mean, it's up, 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 up. Come on, come on, ball. Come on, ball. And then it's Plax, catch the ball. You know, you know, you see it every once in a while. You saw it in the other day when uh, Cincinnati and 
Kansas City were playing. The guy's running wide open, and he's so open that that he drops the pass. Well, you're saying, Plax, catch the ball, catch the ball, catch the ball. And the ball comes down, and he braced himself and caught it. We go ahead. <laughs> they still got 35 seconds left when Brady gets the ball. But we take the lead, and it's never over, not with that team. It's never over. And uh, But, I mean, obviously, we're – the, the sidelines going nuts. Can you hear what what Eli's saying in the huddle? Like, is that on your on your headset? I can't, can't hear. hear. Okay, no. The the coach, the quarterback, takes care of that. Okay, so Eli's not. You're not hearing from Eli what's happening in the huddle in your no, headset. But no, the, no, I don't hear what he said. But it, it, I know what he said. It sounds like Plexico realized when he saw the blitz that the blitz formation. He knew the ball was coming. In. He knew the ball was coming. He knew it was coming. Yep. Did you know that's where it was going when you saw the? I did. As soon as I saw the rotation and the blitz. And it's all a timing thing, right? I mean, if, if if Eli Manning releases that ball too quickly or is rushed, I mean that ball's off. Right. If you got penetration somewhere and he can't he can't judge it. I mean, in that case, obviously the the Plexico was wide open behind the corner, but it's still a delicate throw because you, you don't want to overthrow a guy. You know, you don't want to put him in that position. Because remember earlier in the game, you remember this? When Eli broke out of the pocket to his left and Plaxico was was uh, in the secondary, literally all by himself, he would have had one, one man to beat. Well, with Eli breaking outside, Plax turned back to, to Eli. Eli thought he was going to keep running. Eli throws the ball up where it would have been had Plaxico kept running. And Plax, when he reacts to seeing what's going to happen, can't get there. And we lose a big play. He might have scored there. I mean, that was how – it was only one guy left on the field. Uh, and those things happen. They happen. Do you remember what you said either to Eli Manning when he came off the field or to Kevin Gilbride in the headset or after that play? I was I was so worried about the next play and then what was coming after Stopping that. Stopping Brady. I didn't say anything. Yeah, I, I probably didn't even say anything to them. I got more concerned with keeping Brady out of the end zone. Do you, tell, do you remember telling your defense anything? No, I don't remember uh, other than, you know, what to expect. Mm-hmm. You know, Moss and Brady, I mean, that's how they beat us in, in week 17, if you yeah. remember, on a deep ball, on the deep ball. So you knew you knew that when that happened, there was back-to-back Moss right down the seam, literally down the seam, and he threw two rockets out there. I mean, one of them had to go 60 yards. They rolled them to the right on the second one, and uh, luckily Jabril Wilson and – Corey were in position, but the first one was defended more, I think, by by Corey. So the game ends. You stop Brady and the Pats on that last drive. You win. First thoughts as those seconds tick off. Well, we got to go out on the field and snap the ball and kneel down. That's that's my favorite formation. And out we went. You know, it's called victory. victory. Formation, yeah. And uh, place is going nuts. The place is going crazy. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but. Before the game was over, Bill Belichick came all the way across the field to almost our sideline looking for me. Before you, I went before out, you kn- before it was actually over, he came all the way over there. And then we went out and embraced on the sideline, you know, and exchanged some words. And, and Bill took some heat for that. But that was a very, very uh, nice gesture a, a very sportsmanlike gesture for what you know bill's a great student of the game and historically knows 
and here it was that you know that they they were in a position for an incredible you know undefeated season and uh just a great football game that we were able to win the Giants beat the New England Patriots in that Super Bowl 42, but what a lot of people forget is the game that set them up for that win, the one Coughlin was just mentioning. The two teams met in the final game of the regular season, and that Week 17 matchup changed the way the NFL viewed this unexpected Giants team. We'll have more on that after a break. Week 17 was uh, the first of the of the many challenges, because as you well know, David, as soon as you uh, qualify for the playoffs, the next question the media asks is, "Are you going to play your players?" And so it's yeah. kind of like, "Are you going to rest them and get them ready yeah, for the playoffs?" Script 101, you know, that's coming. And uh, yeah. I thought about, and there's no way, as the head coach of the New York Giants, there's no way that I was going to have history reflect back on. New York Giant team that did not put their best foot forward to play against a team that was striving for an undefeated season. So I told the players that right away. They bought into it completely. And, uh, of course, it was a great football game, totally different game from the Super Bowl. 38-35, we were ahead in the fourth quarter. And then uh, yeah. Brady to Moss kind of a deal uh, kind of put it out of reach for us. But we knew coming off the field that we could play with them. And I think that was a big factor going forward because, uh, you know, no one ever gave us any credit for winning any any of the previous games to the Super Bowl nor the Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, all the Fox experts always picked the other team, including Tampa, 4-0, and then Dallas. Of course, Dallas had beaten us twice, so there was no, yep. there was no reason to think that we were going to be successful there. And then Green Bay with Brett Favre was minus 24 degrees. And uh, we went up there and Eli and Plaxico played like it was 75 degrees. That's when you had a famously red face, I think. It was that cold at Lambeau. It was for sure. It was minus 24. I went out pregame with a hat, no gloves. And I got out there. And I mean, if you've got ears like I've got, you should cover them up. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, didn't think, <laughs> I didn't think there was any way I was going to get back into the locker room. It was so cold. But the first half, we were cold. The second half, I wasn't cold at all. Now, I said that to Strahan. He said, yeah, you were numb. You were frozen. You're already frozen. <laughs> well, can I ask you about that, that NFC Championship game sure. at Lambeau? Because we, we, had, we had Lawrence Tynes on oh, yeah. our show. Sure. Um, he had missed two field goals. And in overtime, I mean, it was a close call whether or not you, you would go for a field goal and, and risk it with a, a long kick after he had missed two. And he says... He made the decision. Like, he went out on the field and was going to go for that long winning kick. Um, is that true? Like, were you thinking about punting? Here's and what happened. Here's what happened. Okay. I mean, we intercept the ball. Corey Webster's got great hands. He catches the ball. Errant throw by Favre. Runs it back. I don't think we made an inch. We didn't, we couldn't, we didn't move the ball at all. Okay? So it comes yeah. to fourth down. Now, the two previous experiences, legitimately – Lawrence had missed a, f a field goal. I think it was 40, 43 or 46 yards. The second one, we had a bad snap. Jay Alford, a rookie, was our short snapper. And Jay just, you know, the ball was frozen. He's frozen. 
and he snaps a bad snap, and uh, Lawrence really can't even, there's no chance, okay? So I'm on the sideline, and it's fourth down. So I wait. I look at Lawrence Tynes. He drops his cape, and he runs out on the field. And I yell, field goal, <laughs> field goal. The coaches in the box are going, no, coach, don't do that. Please look at the field position they'll have if he doesn't make it. He could have made it from 55. But the real drama of that was earlier in the game, in the first half, I go up next to Lawrence and I looked at him and I said, Lawrence, can you make a 46-yard field goal? He turns his back on me and walks away. <laughs> so <laughs> He didn't answer you? No, he turned his back on me and oh, he walked my. away. So, you know, in this situation, then we go through the negative, negative, you know, and now uh, we're in the same boat we're in. You know, we, we, we got to finish this thing and we got to win it. But but I want to see where his mind is before I say what I'm going to say, because I don't want to. You know, he had not answered me at 46. And here we right. are with a 47 yard field goal. And I, you know, he drops his cape and runs out on the field. That's it. Field goal. He thinks he can make it. I'm not going to be the one that doesn't let him do it. So I, okay, field goal. He goes and kicked. Could have made it from 55. But it was still your call. It oh, was yeah. still, it, it, he, he frames it as I made the decision. You're framing it as I was seeing no, whether no. he was confident that I was going to make the, make the decision. No, no, no. He doesn't make the call. I make the call. <laughs> so what is happening at like, are the coordinator, are your coordinators yelling at you in, in your headset at that point being like, don't do this coach. Like it's, too- I can hear the talk upstairs coach. No, you know, be careful. You know, the coordinators are on the field. So these are the guys that are in the headsets upstairs. And I can hear yeah. what they're saying, but I'm not paying any attention to them. And I, let's go field goal. And out he goes. Which assistants or coordinators are up in the booth in a, in a moment like that? The coordinators are on the sideline. They're not upfield, but they're on the headset. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They're that. on there too. So, oh, yeah. So you're listening to chatter from all of them. like I'm listening to whatever comes across. And I can't identify exactly the voice, but the voice is, Coach, think about the field position that's going to happen here if he misses, you know, which was all legitimate. But we, yeah. I mean, how, how often are you going to get in position? It's taken five quarters, okay, in the freezing, freezing cold, minus 24 degrees. So we've got a chance here to win the game. I know he can kick it far enough. You know, I, I, we've just had a bad experience that has to be overcome. And that was the snap. I mean, nobody wants to see that happen. It did happen. And uh, Lawrence runs out there, kicks the field goal, puts us in the Super Bowl. And, I mean, it was a stroke that was true as soon as it got up in the air. And our sideline, you can see Antonio Pierce, our middle linebacker, his eyes are as big as 50-cent pieces as he sees the ball go up because <laughs> he knows he's, you know, we, we've made it. So we're in the yeah. Super Bowl. Oh, it's it's good stuff. So you you arrive in Arizona for the Super Bowl, and the NFL had put the Patriots in a downtown Phoenix hotel, like in the center of the action. They assigned you guys to like a hotel in the middle of the desert. We're in the desert. Yep. It sounds like you weren't unhappy about. I that, wasn't. Though. I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was, first of all, it was a it was a beautiful resort. It was a beautiful resort, and the guys were there, and their families would be there within a couple of days. So it was it was really a very very nice place. For the families to be. Now it was 14 miles from downtown. So the first night, I think all, all of the guys went out and got dinner and had, you know, so on and so forth. The second night, not many of them went out because it was it was such an inconvenience 
to go that they decided <laughs> they decided no. So most of the nights the Maybe guys we'll just here. stayed there. Yeah. Is that is that the style that you would have asked for, like a hotel kind of away from the distractions to keep people I would have requested that one ten out of ten times. Troy Aikman and Joe Buck, who came for the the meeting before game, the game time, yeah, yeah, they had the game. Troy Aikman came in and sat down. And he said, "This looks like a Tom Coughlin hotel," <laughs> and it was. <laughs> what is a Tom Coughlin hotel? What? Why do you think they said that? It was remote. It was out there. The distractions weren't weren't many. Okay. And the idea that the players would stay and visit with each other. And, you know, when their families got there, their families would uh, spend time with each other. That, that was, that was even better. Cause I know on Saturday afternoon, when the guys had a few minutes, a lot of them had their families out at the pool and the pool was right down from where the room that I had was. So I could see them out there with the babies kicking in the water and having a, good time but they were there right right with us so there was really no no chance that there was anything going to happen that i didn't want to have happen tell me about what you told the team on saturday night saturday night uh, you know we go through a normal routine and ed triggs always made me uh we talk about uh, the kind of video that i wanted that night to to uh to make my presentation even even more important and we always had a series of plays that we discussed and talk about uh, with the opposition. But my message to the team that night was that I, I wanted them to win and to be world champions because what was important was when you are the world champion, your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your coaches along the way, they're all world champions. And it's something that you can share with each other. You're at the top of your profession. You're at the top of the world in your profession. And you have all these people who are responsible for the reason that you got there, and you can share it with them. And that's what I wanted for our team. I wanted our team to experience winning so that the mothers, the fathers, the wives, the children could all enjoy and share it with us. It sounds like on Sunday morning, the, the morning of the game, you were in your hotel room surrounded by your family. I, I, I think there's a story that, that you tell about one of your, your granddaughters was like drawing all over your game plan. Yeah, I get up early on game day and I have peace and quiet in, in the, I had a little, an office area. So I was there and I had all my stuff in front of me. I had my game plan, my play, play calling card. You know, I had various things statistically. I had a lot of stuff out there. So I look up and uh, here comes about four or five of my grandkids through the through the door, okay? And they come over and I'm sitting in a chair and they start crawling all over me. And there's a bunch of crayons there, different color things that, you know, you highlight with. And now they start, you know, drawing. And my, my oldest granddaughter, she's drawing pictures on top of my game plan card. And, and it, it actually made me smile and, and laugh uh, because they were having a great time and they were, just enjoying all the stuff that I had there on my on my desktop, and uh, and they they and that was to see them doing that and enjoying themselves was was really fun. That help you stay loose. You know, I, I I had some peace. I don't know where I came from, other than the fact that I knew we had prepared well. I knew that, okay, and I knew that everything was in order for me 
uh, going into the game. As a matter of fact, I was going to go over and jump on a treadmill probably within a half hour of when the kids left uh, my office. The work was done. Well, I never use that phrase. I never use, I'm going to coach them. We're going to talk about it right right to the up until the kickoff. So there was no hay in the barn talk. But I knew, I knew we had prepared well. I knew that the structure of what we had done had been uninterrupted. I knew that our preparation, we used the Arizona Cardinal facility. I knew it was a, you know, they, it was turned over completely to us. We had all the, the, the video equipment. Every, everything was ours to be used properly. We had their weight room. We actually had the, the afternoon practice session. So we, had, we would get up in the morning. Our players had breakfast. Then they had the media. Then we traveled over to the Cardinal facility for our meetings and then eventually practice. And practice was over. We would, you know, whoever wanted to do a little extra strength work or whatever. I remember Strahan being in there kind of late going back to the hotel in the second bus. I knew we had done everything the way I wanted it to be done. And I felt good about that, uh, you know, going into the, after, the afternoon as we got ready to go over to the stadium. Going into that Super Bowl, what were you thinking about the stakes and what was on the line? You know, I didn't let myself go there with, uh, you know, what's this going to mean to this guy and that guy? What is it going to mean to me? You know, what, I, you know, everyone knew what was at stake. I, I had made it very, very clear to everybody, the players, coaches, everybody, exactly what was at stake. And I mean, we all know that if uh, you're if you're in a Super Bowl, you, you really need to win it because nobody remembers who who was even in the game shortly thereafter. And it doesn't become a feather in your cap to be beaten in the, in the Super Bowl. So we knew all, we knew all that. I knew all that, but what I, what it came down to and the way that I wanted it presented to our team was you're prepared, you're ready. Okay. We're going to do everything in our power as a coaching staff to put you in the best position we can put you in. And then you've got to make the plays necessary for us to win. And I always, always believed in that statement about playing above the X's and O's. You got to play above. And I always tempered that statement with a thought about, and a lot of times the play that you know makes the difference in a game comes from somebody you didn't think was going to be that big a factor in the game. And that's the way it was presented. Coach, I, I want to talk about your uh your reputation as a as a real stickler for rules, a disciplinarian. Um, Eli Manning tells this story of in his his first years, you ordering him to diagram hundreds of blitz packages from other teams and how he would react as quarterback, even to a point of when he didn't do it to your liking, you started redlining and, and gave it back to him. And I'm just amazed because that that winning. That winning touchdown was so based on a quarterback knowing how to respond to a blitz. Oh, no like, doubt. Did, did that no validate? Doubt. Did that validate all that work that you and Eli did together and kind of your your style? Well, and you got to remember, you got to remember uh, going back, David, is that I started Kurt. Kurt Warner won the job in su- in the summer and deserved the right to start. In Eli's first year. That first year. Yep. In 04. Yeah. So. By the time we, you know, as, as that was going on, I was not going to let Eli just stand there on the sideline and not, you know, develop and be in a position where I thought he was ready to go when we decided to move him in. 
So one of the things I had him do was he would draw every blitz. Let's say we were going to play the Philadelphia Eagles. He would draw every blitz in their repertoire, and he would describe it. He would block it. He would tell the protections, and he would recognize whether it was a hot or a sight adjustment or whatever. What would he do to stifle the blitz? How would he adjust the protections? What would he do, et cetera? So I, I, I made him draw all of these blitzes out and identify them and tell me what he would do about it. And then he would turn it into me and I would, you know, I'd look through it. I'd, I, I, I would agree, disagree. I would mark it with a red pen. I would do all that. One week he tried to slip it by me thinking, you know, he'll never, he's not going to look at this stuff. So I <laughs> can't possibly expect me to do this all the time. So I'm looking and looking and looking. I'm, what is this? This is, this is the poorest edition of his blitz pickup that I've seen, you know? So I mark it all up, mark it all up, give it back to him. Now he's got to give it back to me, you know, correct it. But that, you know, for somebody as bright as he is, you know, this guy was, his wonderlick is off the Richter scale. He was a 4-0 as a freshman in college. I know that. But he's really a smart young man. And the two qualities that, that he doesn't get enough credit for is one is intelligence, meaning you could do whatever you want with him. He's always going to retain it. He's always going to know what you want. And secondly, he's going to line up and play. I mean, he played, you know, one year he had a separated shoulder. He still played, you know, so he was going to line up and play. And what a what a wonderful thing that is for a coaching staff to not be guessing, you know, on Monday whether or not he's going to play the following weekend because it determines what how sophisticated is your plan going to be. So those were the things about, about Eli that, you know, people kind of overlooked the fact. He's just going to line up. You know, he's going to line up. He's but did that play validate kind of your your focus on all those all that stuff you were making him do? The fact that the the Super Bowl was won on a sure, but by then you know he he start he we won eleven games, you know the year that he started from completion from beginning to end. He he we won eleven games that year, which was his his second year, his sophomore year. But you came in to the the coaching job with the Giants with this this kind of reputation out there from oh, you know, yeah. the time in Jacksonville and, oh, and I mean yeah. Michael Strahan in the beginning I mean he says that that as you were coming in he he even used the word hated you yeah, he did. you know not wanting to have a disciplinarian in, in your kind of style like how did you overcome that in the locker room well I can still in those days I don't know if you remember if you remember the old the old Giant Stadium it had the spiral back down to the bottom and the bottom yeah, was course. like where, where the cafeteria was and it was like aluminum stairs. So I can hear him clunk, clunk, clunk coming up to my office. So here he comes. He comes in. He's got this real sour puss. And he really wants to talk to me about, you know, what my plans were. And and he's kind of representing the whole team. You know, he's he's the spokesman now for the team. And, you know, we, we banter back and forth and have a conversation. And here's what I came to learn about Michael Strahan, okay? First of all, he's a military kid, okay? His dad was stationed in Germany, and that's where Michael kind of grew up as a young man. Michael was heavy as a youngster, so his dad got him to work out with him and taught him, you know, some things about proper diet and so on and so forth and, 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 and exercise routine. But his dad was military, 
So I, I knew it in the back of my mind. I believed that I, I could get through to Michael Strahan because I knew what his value system really was, even though he may not have wanted to share that with me. And it took time. It definitely took time, but it took time and, you know, spending time together and him seeing us in action. And then he had gone through a year. I don't know if you remember, he was on IR and those things all contributed to the terrible year in 06. Wasn't terrible. It was eight and eight, but we would have been a better football team had we had all the tools available to us. But, but so eventually the one thing that Michael would tell you is that he had had all these individual uh, recognition pieces that you could possibly want as a player, but the one thing he really wanted had escaped him. But you're not going to win a world championship without being the best of teams. Team, not the individual, team, okay? And he, of course, had his role with his, with his teammates, but he had missed training camp that last year, okay? And I decided to handle it a little bit different way. I called him. I constantly was maybe once a week, I would let him know where we are as a team. You know, are you, are you in good shape? Are you still thinking about what you want to do? And I had, I think I had convinced him that if you're going to come back, you know, and I said it this way, I didn't, I didn't beg him to come back. I said, Michael, we'd love to have you back. But if you're going to come back, make sure that your heart is in the right place. Make sure you come back for the right reason. Because we're going to be dependent on you, you know, once you get here to be the best that you can be. He wasn't back two, two days and he was voted captain. So that tells you a little bit of what, what the players thought about him. I have to say, I know this has been a very painful time for you. You lost your wife, Judy, about a month ago before before this conversation we're having. And I, I, I'm so sorry. I am I'm keeping you in my prayers and, and your family as well. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, November 2nd, uh, she passed away 3.31 in the morning. If you know anything about the J Fund, you know 31 means quite a bit to us. That's your foundation for to fight cancer. My foundation that helps families who have a child with cancer. And remind us about the 31 connection so everyone knows. Jay McGillis, the young man whose name uh, is respectfully put on the J Fund Foundation, was my starting strong safety at Boston College who died of leukemia. And I watched what his family went through. And I saw them run to the bedside of the sick child. I saw them stop working. I saw them go into debt. And one of my linebackers, a guy by the name of Mike Panos, a great kid, came to me in the spring and he said, Coach, we got to do something to help the McGillis family. And I said, Oh, sit down, we'll talk about it. We came up with this, what we call the liftathon. In those days, the players would do a max bench, squat, power clean, you know, before they went home for the summer. And so we did that, but they went out and got pledges from people in the community. And we raised $50,000 and gave $50,000 to the McGillis family at halftime of the spring game. That gave me the idea of what I was going to do when I had the opportunity, okay, to give back. It would be in the spirit and the name of Jay McGillis, and we would help families in a practical way that a child with cancer. So we pay for mortgage payments, rent payments, car payments, electric bills, you name it. If it's of the practical nature, 
transporting them back and forth to the hospital, funerals, whatever, whatever we can do to keep the family unit together while they're going through the idea of helping a child recover from cancer. For 28 years, we've been doing this. We have one section of the J Fund in New York, New Jersey, one in Jacksonville, Florida. We've helped well over 5,000 families. We've assisted them with over $17 million in assisted aid. So we're trying to make a difference. It's amazing work, Coach. Thank you. Um, so you were you were talking about the, I guess it was early in the morning that, that Judy passed. 3.30 in the morning. 3.31 in the morning. And she, um, she was diagnosed with a disease called progressive supernuclear palsy, which I, I will tell you my grandmother died of. Um, it is Seriously? A, oh, yeah. my goodness. It, I know how rare it is, yeah. Very rare. No, it really is, and it's... It's a terrible disease because it robs you of everything. For the last year and a half, Judy couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. She couldn't do anything. Now, she'd express herself with her eyes. She could smile, and I knew she... She knew what I was saying to her. She knew right up to the very end because I always made a big deal about like in the morning, come in, I put the blinds up, I, you know, turn the television on, I would get down on her face and tell her I loved her and good morning and all of that stuff. So I knew when she would smile and when she had a good day, we all had a good day. When she had a bad day, we had a bad day. You've been speaking out about those, those days, the good and the bad and, and, kind of the experience of caregiving and what that was like for you. Uh, what, what do you want all of us to know about that? You know, I, want, I, I wrote an article in the New York Times about this. Caregiving is all-consuming. The first thing you do is your day, your schedule, is all built around the person that you're taking care of. You don't have your own day. You don't have your own time. Every day is basically the same. You start out, like for for us, start out at 6 in the morning, 7 days a week, 24 hours a day, boom, boom, boom. The schedule goes on to try. Continuity is important when people are struggling with that, you know, dementia being such a big part of this. Okay, so, but there's a physical aspect to it. There's a mental aspect to it. When I said to you that if Judy's having a bad day, I'm happy. I mean, you, you really wonder whether you have any worth. You know, you failed. You failed at your one job, and that was to take care of this person that you love, okay? And if she's, if you're not able to accomplish that, or every day sets out that you want them to want them to have a great day, okay? They may not have many left, whatever, but you want them to have a great day. And when that doesn't happen, you're questioning yourself, and it's not fair to, to people out there. And like I was the number one caregiver, but I could afford to have other caregivers. I had a, a person there from eight in the morning till eight at night. And together, one, I would do all the preparation and all of that. And they would be with Judy. They would read to her and they would, you know, we would play music and we would. But there are lots of families that can't afford that. And now it falls upon just the, the main caregiver and family members, et cetera. And to, to say that it's not an easy job is an understatement. There's nothing about it that is easy or simple. It's hard, it's hard work. And people have to give themselves a, a, a break 
have to give themselves a chance to, to, to have somewhat of a life. Uh, and without that, you're not any good to the person you're taking care of. You know, you've got to take care of yourself. So physical activity, I'm ashamed to say it, but I didn't read, I did not read a book in three years. I couldn't hmm. sit there and focus long enough to read. So what, what happened at night is after you put her to bed, you're like a vegetable. You know, you sit in your chair like this for another couple of hours, and then you go to bed, and you start the day over again. So it, your your advice is you're not being selfish if you're taking time got to do it. for yourself. You're actually helping, you're helping the person you're caring for. You have got to do that. You've got to eat right. Now, luckily for me, I, you know, we had basically a Mediterranean diet. Judy ate really well all the way up to the last month or month and a half. But diet is important. Exercise is important. What about that burden? How, how do you tell people to deal with that feeling of, of pressure and that feeling of failure? If, if you look at someone you love who's, who's very sick and is having a bad day, how do you not put that on yourself? <laughs> I don't know, because I did. I put it on myself. But, but it's not fair to do that to yourself, really. And, uh, and you, need, you need some help. Sometimes you just need a break. You know, sometimes you just go watch a Sunday afternoon football game without having to do this, that, or the other thing. So I had great help. I have two children that live nearby, and they're uh, my daughter-in-laws, my son-in-law. They they would all chip in and help. But you 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 definitely need to give yourself a break, Coach. You you wrote that you thought that the Super Bowl wins while coaching the Giants were the culmination of a life lived in service of certain values, but that actually your time with Judy was the culmination of that. What, what are those values? The obvious, the, uh, look, she, Judy, here's the way I say it best, okay? We were married for 55 years. For the last five years, I was Judy's caregiver. For the first 50 years, she was my caregiver. So I looked at this when I finally came home and I was there just to take care of her. That was my job. And I was going to do that to the best of my ability because Judy would have done that for me. She is my responsibility and my love for her is going to permeate everything that I do, knowing full well what she's going through. And when they say the word progressive, they mean progressive. It's a fast-moving disease. So my commitment was to make her as comfortable and as, as best that she could be under the circumstances. And to that end, even even with you know with our uh, with our grandkids around, she loved the chaos. She she couldn't show it, but she she loved it. So you'd have Thanksgiving dinner would be you know there and and be kids running all around and doing all kinds of. Th- but she loved that part of it. And and can you can you reflect a little bit on this feeling that that um I don't know that you you saw those Super Bowl wins as some sort of end to a journey, but now you see them as, as not that at all, that, that, that the really important journey in your life was, 
was the one the last few years. Well, I'm not saying that the, that winning the Super Bowl wasn't important, but what I am saying is that, 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 as I said, I mean, you there's one ring that's more important than the other ones, and that was someone who I loved was in desperate need. I'm going to be there, no matter what. Coach, it's a it's really a pleasure talking to you, and. Um, your your wife sounds like she was an extraordinary person, um, and uh, you know. We'll, you would have liked her. You would have liked her. Yeah, I, I can feel that already. Her smile lit up the room. She loved and she cared, and she had time for everybody. Treated everybody the same. Everybody had a spot in her life, and she would always acknowledge it. She never wanted to be up front. She always wanted to be, you know, in the background, and that's why. When it came to her celebration of life, we were going to, my family, my kids and I, we were going to make sure that that she would be proud of what what transpired. And sure, we're going to cry, but we're also going to tell stories and laugh and, and make, you know, make this something she would have been happy to, to have been a part of. What's next for you, Coach Coughlin? I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. I don't know. You know, I, I, I was fortunate enough, Greg Hanlon and I wrote this book, and I really enjoyed writing this book. I, I enjoyed the memories. I enjoyed thinking about the various individuals, the players, and going into detail about their personalities and that type of thing, studying the game again and watching, you know, the, the different series and the highlights and things that that, uh, that I enjoyed talking about. So I did, did enjoy all of that. And uh I think the first thing for me is I'm kind of a routine guy. I got to get a new routine. I, I'm not back there yet. You know, I'm, I don't have it yet. I'm not, not there yet. I, uh, I, right now, for example, I, I don't know what to do between six and eight in the evening. Cause that was when, you know, we prepared the meal, we gave her the meal, we cleaned up, we prepared her for her evening, we put her to bed, you know, those, those things prevailed our evenings. And of course I'm, I'm not doing that right now. So I, I do need, to come to terms with my physical activity has improved and that's a good thing and I'll continue that but uh, I do have to work this thing through again I need I need to get something good to read and I need to stimulate myself that way again and uh, I love dabbling in the football I don't know what what's out there for me but enjoyment of keeping track of the game and watching the game and all those kind of things I enjoy that Coach, great, great talking to you. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Enjoyed talking with you. Okay, so to find out about our upcoming interviews, follow Religion of Sports on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me. I am at Fearless Green. That is Fearless underscore Green with an E on the end. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. I got to say, this show would not be what it is without an extraordinary team making it all happen. In the Moment is produced by Sarah McCrory. Sound design and mixing by Michael Raphael and Jocelyn Gonzalez at PRX Productions. Britt Kahn is our talent booker. Our production manager is BJ Olin. Story research was done by Joe Levin. Kevin Sullivan edited this episode and is the head of talk. Gotham Chopra, Amit Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman are our executive producers. And Fearless Media is our consulting producer. Also, special thanks to Teresa Tran. In the Moment is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. We're going to be back next week with another athlete and their moment.
from PRX.